0: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Silk and Steel podcast. I am your host, Carl Zah. Today we have a very special episode for you guys, um, because this is the 79th anniversary of the Bruce Lee's birth date. And I have always wanted to do an episode on Bruce Lee's family history because I find it fascinating and it's actually very little known. And to help me uh, guest, po- um, guest host this podcast is my very good friend, David uh, da- Davide Melia. Uh, David Melia is fine. Uh I, I, I'm gonna try to be authentic, sir. I'm gonna go with Davide. So, Davide. Uh, welcome okay. back to the show, Davide.
1: Uh thank you, Carl. Um yeah, it's good to be back. Uh long time no talk, mate. I know, I know. You
0: know, we had such a great fun recording uh, about our Yunnan our traveling in Yunnan in China, just talking about Yunnan in general. I mean Oh uh, you- just
1: yeah. Every time, like even even back when we did um, Clash, uh, that was that was always fun. Um, and then on the earlier episodes of this podcast, yeah, it was also fun. You know, it was good to meet you and it was good talking about uh, your time here in Yunnan.
0: Oh, yeah. And, 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 and thank you for that invitation to the Water Festival. You know, that was an interesting... For me to get off my ass in California and book a plane trip to, to China, to, to Asia, you know, like I, I've been dilly-dallying and, and finally that was my, um, you know, excuse. I don't really
1: need an well, excuse. But... We, we were talking about that from, I met you in uh, like late 2017 and uh, that was like the first thing we talked about was... Um, what was that scene in the East is red, uh, the oh, die yeah. women coming coming down um, going up the mountain with the flowers. Yes, you... uh, if for the people who are not familiar, you know, maybe they have not
0: heard of this musical extravaganza uh, made in nineteen, I think sixty four or sixty five, China called the East is red for the Chinese uh, music extravaganza. Yeast is red. There's a famous uh, dance number near the end called the Dance of Nationalities. And it features, uh, um, you know, different ethnic groups of, of China performing their traditional dance. And one particular sequence that stuck out for me was a procession of Dai women with um, garland holding over their heads. And and I was just mesmerized by that whole sequence. And then through talking to you, You're the one who told me that that's actually a a traditional ritual for for the Thai people on the water festival.
1: Yeah, the first day of the water festival. Um, Water festival goes for three or four days. Water festival is a Buddhist ceremony. It's celebrated all over Southeast Asia. In Thailand, it's called Songkran. Um, It also has a, a different name in Myanmar, which I've unfortunately forgotten. Um, but here it's simply called the Water Festival. And on the first day of Water Festival, the dehong Dai people, they go up the mountain to pick um, garlands of branches, flowers, stuff like that. So they go in procession up the mountain and pick the flowers, pick the branches, and then they come in procession down the mountain and... The branches and flowers are used to decorate uh, the Buddhist temples uh, where they worship. And then um, the rest of the holiday is quite different. But that that procession up the mountain and down the mountain is the first day of the water festival. And maybe maybe the most significant day of the water festival from a religious viewpoint. Um but yeah, that, that was what was represented in The East is Red. And uh, earlier this year, Carl was able to come here to Mengsha in Dehong Prefecture in Yunnan to experience this for himself. Um, and we'd been talking about this ever since we met each other at the end of 2017. And it was also the first time I'd met Carl. So that was really that was really... Yeah, it's nice for both of us, I think. Um, Quite of
0: a cultural experience. And I must thank you for you know, bringing oh, me into that.
1: Well, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to have people come visit here. Uh, it's a long way from anywhere. Um, not, pretty much no one comes here unless they've got a specific reason to come here. Um, it's not a super famous uh, tourist destination or anything like that but it does have a very rich and
0: which is really a shame because uh even in china yeah. itself uh, yun, the Dai culture in yunnan uh, the best known destination is which is on yeah. the other side of yunnan it's on the southeast corner uh border with uh with laos and, yeah. and that's that's you know how when I hear about Water Festival, Yunnan, that's what springs to my mind because I have uh, my uncle on my mother's side was sent down to Sichuan <laughs> Banat during the Cultural Revolution to work on the <laughs> rubber plantation, and, yeah, and yeah. I think that also is how like the, the idea of Sichuan Banan got introduced to a lot of the you know the, the Chinese people in the in the Han Chinese part of China. and and, uh but mongsi was kind of neglected even though you know after being there talking to people i realized mongsi actually
1: hosts the largest water festival in china and yeah um people people come here i just want to cut in for a second people come here for water festival from all over yunnan all over myanmar even um Carl, you'll remember that during Water Festival, we met people from Shishuangbanna, Dai people from Shishuangbanna, Dai people from Myanmar, from Shan State in Myanmar, um, and from other places in Yunnan as well. Um, that it's it's not just uh, a local celebration it is a Dai celebration. It's a celebration for the Dai people from wherever. Um, And Yunnan, uh, Mungsha specifically was the center of one of the Dai kingdoms, um, you know, which really only finished in 1949, at least here. So it's it's a very important place um, for Dai culture. Yes. Uh, the Dai are also called the Shans in Myanmar. Uh, yeah.
0: And actually, the, the Mong Si Dai culture is, I, to my surprise, I discovered it's actually different from the Dai culture in Xishuangbanna, which is yeah. closer, the Xishuangbanna Dai are closer to the Dai's across the border in Laos, whereas, uh, you know, the monks Si Dai, or the Dehong Dai people are closer to uh, people across the border in Myanmar. And I remember uh, during Water Festival Day, you know, we ha- we seen these uh, women from Myanmar down in their best holidays fineries, you know, like beautiful, beautiful traditional dresses. Uh, I mean, it's a quite
1: a sight. At, at my friend's uh, sister's restaurant that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's, that's the thing. My friend... Um, he, his family and he are also Dai people. Originally his mother is a Shan person, a Dai person from Myanmar. But she she has lived here for a long time. And so uh, they they are Dai people. It's it's funny that they were born here and they've lived here for their life, so they are considered local Dai people. And not Shan people, even though their mother is a Shan person from Myanmar. So I think I think that there's there's not too much of an internal distinction between um, Shan people and Dai people, and really. The the difference between the groups is mainly cultural, more than anything else.
0: Yeah, I mean, really, that border, that international border exists as uh, of today between Yunnan and Myanmar, is really like a uh, result of the <laughs> result of the British pushing from the north, you know, during their colonial. Identity. Oh, totally. So, I mean, the, the the Dai people in the region, they have all like, you know, lived there for thousands of years, and they have a uh, very strong, you know, kinship connections and, and and cultural ties, and and for that, like the 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 the, 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 the distinction is more like a like a, a outside imposed distinction. I mean, now now there is a distinction, obviously, but um, it's more like in the last, I say, like hundred years or so, and
1: yeah, um, well. There's um, there's always been Dai Kingdoms in the area which have stretched across much of Yunnan. But um, from what I can tell from talking to my friends here, um, it's like we we are all Dai people. We are all Shan people. We, we are all the same. We have the same origin. Um, however, there are cultural differences because the kingdoms of the Dai people really were spread out over such a massive area. Right. And And so in different places, there's different, you know, like, as you say, the Shishuang Ba'ana Dai people are more influenced by Lao culture. Here, the Dai people are more influenced by uh, Myanmar culture. Yeah. Because
0: also by Uh, the geography of Yunnan, because Yunnan is just a series of mountains and valleys. You know, there is a, there's some big mountain range between Xishuangbanna and Dehong, so they you know the the that kind of uh <laughs> allowed different cultural <laughs> diversity to develop even among the you know the different die groups. Um, but we we digress a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we originally <laughs> came to talk about Bruce Lee and his family. Yeah. yeah so let's let's. let's yeah, his family yeah, let's history. Yeah, um, <laughs> let's get to our original topic. Um, you know, one of the, yes, one of the reasons I want to talk about this, uh, one, you know, Bruce Lee is a fascinating character and, you know, he's a cultural icon. And, and you know, now Hong Kong is in the headlines again. You know, you know, a lot of times the <laughs> Bruce Lee, you know, is being evoked, you know, by all people from all Attempts, right?
1: Oh, um, oh yes. The, the 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 protests have been influenced by Bruce Lee's, mind you, Bruce Lee's philosophy to to be like yes. water, and um, that that itself, people assume that Bruce Lee originated this trope, um, which, as as you all know, is not right. true. Um, I mean, he, he he was simply citing a very well-known yes. idea that's existed in Chinese culture for um when when was Cheng Tzu around? Um, I'm oh bit... yeah,
0: so this is like uh, so, so so this is kind of a be like water is kind of a Taoist philosophy. And in, you know, yeah, exactly. It um, was formulated by you know basically Taoism is attributed to Lao but really uh, developed by Zhuangzi. Zhuangzi, which one,
1: yeah, yeah Zhuangzi, who is yeah.
0: Uh, like a person who lived during the Warring State period of China, which is pre-unification by Qin Dynasty. So we're talking about. Oh. Yeah, we're just talking. about... He like, was
1: around about two and a half thousand years ago. Yeah,
0: yeah, we're talking about closer to the time of Confucius. Um, it's long, well, long, time ago.
1: Yeah. Well, Zhuangzi, um he he will be well known. Um, he he ha- you know, he wrote a lot of things yeah. um, that are recorded in the book Zhuangzi. But uh, two things that he will be very famous for are. Um, uh, the idea of being formless like water, that you take the form that's appropriate to your surrounding. Um, that's one thing that Bruce Lee has cited much later on. But second, the the man who dreamed that he was a butterfly. yes. And then he woke up and he wondered, am I a man who dreamed of being a butterfly? Or am a but am I a butterfly who is dreaming of being a man? Yes. Uh, but he he was like uh, the he was one of the two founders of Taoism as such, that you had the Dao De Ching and then you had Zhang Zhe, the book of his sayings, and they are considered to be the two the two texts which Taoism are based on. Yep.
0: Oh yeah, sorry. We're, go on. It's um, okay. I, I it's a nice because digression for, from uh, from our topic, for, but, it, but,
1: but it's irrelevant. But yeah. But anyway, that's um that Bruce Lee was very very he he was an incredibly smart guy. Uh, he read uh, philosophy extensively, um, all kinds of philosophy. That he was very well. Acquainted with Western philosophy, but he was also very well acquainted with Chinese philosophy. And in fact, um, his, his well known book, The Tao of uh, Jeet Kune Do, um, contains a lot of ideas from Taoism as well as other uh, philosophical traditions. It's it's um, it's implied in the name the Tao of Jeet Kune Do, uh, which has been taken. You know the Tao of motorcycle repair, blah 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 blah. It's become like a bit of an early meme in itself to call your book the Tao of something or the other. So um, the, the idea that uh, Bruce. Anyway, the idea that Bruce Lee was the originator of this idea, uh, it kind of speaks to a generalized philosophical ignorance that's on a really, lot of people's right. part, you know, because it's such it's it's such a famous idea, um, and the uh, and Bruce Lee, Popularized. Um, like not stealing, but uh, Bruce Lee. Yeah, yeah. Sampling this idea from elsewhere should be very obvious, but it's like, no, Bruce Lee. It's Bruce Lee's idea, uh, which it wasn't. Like he was simply uh, drawing upon a he very popularized well-known to a philosophical wider idea. audience. Yeah, with- yeah, absolutely. Like Bruce Lee, um, for my part, as uh, a Westerner from Australia. Yeah, for me, like I grew up in the suburbs in Perth, which is the most isolated capital city in the world, or at least this is one of our our talking points for our city. Um, and for me, my my earliest introduction to Chinese culture and Chinese ideas was Bruce Lee. Um, you know, uh, Way of the Dragon and other um, other of his movies. And Bruce Lee was also my introduction to the idea of martial arts. Like my father was a boxer, so I knew about boxing pretty well from an early age. But watching Bruce Lee's movies is really what got me interested in martial arts, and uh, I went on to study several different martial arts throughout the course of my life. But Bruce, Lee, like Bruce Lee, was the man who. Who brought this knowledge of Chinese ideas and Chinese philosophy to to the Western yeah. world? Really, like, and, and made it made it something desirable, made it something that people were interested in, not just uh, this collection of uh, racist tropes for for idiots to to make fun of, but he he gave it esteem like he gave it he gave it some pride you know that people people thought yeah this there's something to this you know this is something that i could i could definitely benefit from learning about and being more yeah and the in.
0: the the interesting part about bruce lee's story is his, his life is really uh, kind of typifies the, the Asian American experience because Bruce Lee, as people may well know, yeah. he was actually born in a San Francisco hospital. So he he, he is American by birth. Yes. And he grew up in Hong Kong and then, you know, traveled to U.S. for education. And, and you know, in doing so, you know, he, try, he goes through that period of trying to, assimilate into the mainstream American culture. He went to U.S. University where he majored in philosophy, actually. And then he, um, you know, tried to bring the bring his uh, heritage and culture and try to introduce to the wider Western audience by starting the, the Kung Fu School and and, you know, and also breaking into Hollywood. Um, but eventually he ran into that glass ceiling because, you know, when he suggested the idea of, of a TV show, you know, how, about a, a Chinese traveling Chinese ah. uh, a Shaolin monk in the American West, you know, having adventures. So Hollywood yeah. took his idea yeah. But they felt Bruce Lee was too Chinese to play the play the the main character who is the Shaolin monk. So they decided to cast David Carradine, you know, Irish American.
1: Yeah, as as the as the half as the half Chinese Taoist monk yes. traveling the Wild West. And then they I think they actually went with that thing yeah. that they taped his eyebrows back a bit so he would quote yeah. look yeah. more Chinese. And yeah, they they had David Carradine who who kind of sucked. Like he, he wasn't a martial artist. He didn't he didn't have the moves, he didn't have anything. He was just like some Western but- guy. <laughs> and the idea the idea was supposed to be for Bruce Lee who was this ridiculously athletic and ridiculously talented martial artist among other things and they gave it to a non martial artist irish guy
0: because bruce lee is too chinese to play Which, a chinese person in hollywood
1: and 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 so bruce lee being too chinese and that's the thing about Bruce Lee, which I'm sure you'd like to get onto. Bruce Lee himself was of um, he had a we- uh, 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 Western heritage as yes. well, yeah, but he looked too Chinese for American TV. He eventually,
0: I mean, that actually drove Bruce Lee to leave Hollywood to go to Hong Kong, where he was approached by the local movie right. producer because he's uh uh, success actually in in Hollywood because he played Cato uh, in Green Green Hornet and he became a hit in in Hong Kong you know because you know they
1: Cato it was it was called the Cato Show in Hong Kong they they didn't give a shit about the Green <laughs> Hornet they cared about this Chinese guy kicking ass <laughs> all over the place like it was it was the he was the man in Hong Kong even before he went. This yes. Night. So
0: so he kept and was able to capitalize his fame in Hong Kong. And and that's where he really, you know, found his stardom. Like like in Asia, like when he returned to his roots. I mean, so so in, in a way, this is like he exemplify uh, in many ways, you know, the, the Asian American story even rings true to this day.
1: Yeah, um, uh, well, well, everything Bruce Lee touched turned to gold. Like you know, he said you said he went to Hong Kong. Um, he he was in 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 uh he negotiated with both uh, Shaw Brothers Studio and Golden Harvest, right? Um, and he he eventually ended up working for Golden Harvest. Um, and that's really what made Golden Harvest. And then Golden Harvest went on to they were the the production studio behind Bruce Lee's early movies, Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung. Um, they they became like uh, before that. Shaw Brothers were were like the kings of Hong Kong martial arts cinema, but after Bruce Lee, um, Golden Harvest really became the the big player in town.
0: Yeah, and, uh, and sorry and. And from his success in Hong Kong, that eventually, you know, that, that success filtered back to the West and, and people in the West finally discovered Bruce Lee. It's like, wow, this is amazing. And, and what, so well, I, his, what I want Sorry. Go ahead. No,
1: go ahead. No, um, go ahead. His, his, sorry. His, his Hong Kong movies, they weren't getting uh, mainstream uh, play in American movie cinemas at the time but they were getting extensive play um, in Chinatown cinemas, you know, like the, the cinemas where like Asian people, Chinese people and other, other people from Asia would go to um, watch movies from their home countries or from China or Hong Kong or whatever. And Hollywood noticed just how much money – this guy Hong Kong... Yeah, well, Bruce Lee was, 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 rel- was relatively well-known in Hollywood anyway because he'd been on the Green Hornet and so on. And also because he had all these superstar martial arts. Um, he had all these superstars as his uh, clients. Like, he would teach martial arts as well. That was one of his other um, hustles. So he was pretty well-known. But then Hollywood took notice when they went... Hang on, this guy's movies are generating more money than anything else in the chi- in the Chinatown circuit. Like he's obviously got something. We need to get him for a for a proper Hollywood movie, you know. And that's when they started, they opened up negotiations with him. And they were willing at that point to deal with Bruce Lee on the terms that he wanted. And that's and that's when Enter the Dragon became something that um, started to happen.
0: Yeah, and one of the features of a lot of the Bruce Lee kung fu films, it's about the Chinese pride. You know, yeah. it's always like, it's very um, kind of like assertive, uh, uh, like a being a, a Chinese person, and and this is something that's you know definitely. Um, a feature uh, of the, the success of the, the Bruce Lee movies, I think.
1: Well, well, notably fist of fury, you know, um, that's, that's, um, that's based on, well, you know, loosely based on a, a historical figure, Huo Yanjia, um, that he, he was fighting. This is back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He was fighting foreign fighters, um, at a time, you know, when when China was basically getting punked by every Western country in the world. And this guy, Huo Yanjia, was taking on foreign fighters and beating their asses. Um, And Fist of Fury has him playing Chen Zhen, a, a student of Huo Yanjia, Right. Yeah. And he, you know, know, all the famous scenes, him going into the, um, you know, like this is at a time where basically the Japanese are running amok in, uh, Shanghai. And, uh, you know, they have a sign, oh, you know, China is the sick man of East Asia. And, yeah. Uh, the movie is set in the 1910s in Shanghai. Um, and there's you know there's a Japanese dojo, and uh, basically they're um, engaged in provoking and humiliating the local Chinese people. Like they go they go to a Chinese uh, martial arts school with a sign saying you know China is the sick man of Asia, and um, uh, you know like oh I'll I'll eat. I'll eat this sign if any if any of you punks come and fight me and beat me. Um, and Bruce Lee's character, of course, you know, Bruce Lee's character is always very, very, you know, they're, they're, they're ready to fight at any moment. But then um, he gets stopped from fighting by the senior at that school. So he says, oh, fuck this. He goes there by himself. And there's that famous scene where he basically takes on the entire dojo, including their master, beats them all, uh, and then he you know he makes he makes the um the students who came to his uh his school eat the sign. They said they would eat the sign, and he just walks it walks in by himself and smashes all of them. And then he stands up and says now, listen to me, all of you. I'm only gonna say this once. We are not sick men. and when when that movie screened in Hong Kong, like it created a frenzy, like this is the moment when Bruce Lee became the fucking man. like really, you know, um, so at, like that's 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 really. Because uh, Bruce Lee's first movie, I mean, like, it was really good because Bruce Lee was in it, but, like, the the the, produ- the director, Lo A, was, like, like, a real hack. Like, it was... The movie would have been a piece of shit and completely forgotten if it wasn't for Bruce Lee. But uh, Fist of Fury, and particularly that moment of Fist of Fury is what put Bruce Lee on the map in Hong Kong. And that's what started the Bruce Lee craze. That that moment of um Bruce Lee's character Chen Zhen, asserting China as as not just this whipping boy for the Western powers and Japan to to punk out. And and this was in Hong Kong. Like this this whole scene caused this enormous frenzy in Hong Kong, not in mainland China, but in Hong Kong.
0: Yeah, so, and this particular it, background, you know, you you have to consider the time and the date. This during the time when Hong Kong was a British colony, you know, there was still a lot of tension left over from the nineteen sixty seven protests against rule. Right. And a and lot of the Bruce Lee yeah. movie, it features him basically kicking ass of all these like arrogant Westerners. Right. Uh, um, yeah <laughs> and they, had, they found a ready audience in Hong Kong because, you know, that's what people like to see. You know, that's that's a, and, and it's it's a ready made market for that. and. And this is one reason I wanted to talk about uh, Bruce Lee's family history, because, you know, in a lot of ways that the Bruce Lee's family history typified the, the history of Hong Kong itself um, and, and and it's still very little known. So I'd like to bring, uh, shed light on that aspect of it. Um, I I personally didn't know about this until... I think when the movie, the Bruce Lee biopic, The Dragon, came out, uh, featuring, yeah, Jason, Jason oh Scott gosh. Lee, right? <laughs> um,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I saw that. I saw that many times. I even had the novelization. That's how. That's how crazy I was about hong kong about uh, Bruce bruce yeah and and, the,
0: and then um so i remember some uh there was some talk show about the movie and about bruce lee and somebody brought uh up that oh bruce lee has a quarter some western heritage i was like what i never heard of that before and so i did some um you know i start searching on google and it turns out that bruce lee's mother uh grace ho Came from a very prominent uh, Hong Kong Eurasian family, is of mixed Eurasian heritage, which in in uh, in Hong Kong means you know like like British, uh, I mean Chinese and some Westerner, and yes, and so I started looking into this uh, Grace Hose family, the the whole family of Hong Kong, and it turns out it's a very very prominent. Hong Kong family that kind was one of the richest family in Hong Kong. Um, and, and he shaped her, her uncle, right? He, her, her dad and her uncle, um, because, okay, sorry. go Yeah. On. Yeah. Because, okay. So this, um, the, the, even today, you know, like the, 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 I mean, if people have been to the British museum, you may have uh, heard of the whole people who have been to the British museum, if you went to the, kind of the, the Asian collection of the British Museum. It's called the Ho Tong Gallery and Ho Tong oh, wow. yeah, Ho Tong is this uh, Hong Kong family wh- with whom uh, Bruce Lee is related. It's actually uh, the, the first Ho Tong is a Robert Ho Tong who is a granduncle of Bruce Lee. And yeah. and they are a very prominent Hong Kong family for, you know, hundreds of years from the very beginning um
1: yeah um his his father was of dutch jewish ancestry apparently um yes
0: so i want to talk about this because this is like basically a story of hong
1: kong so yeah the whole family well well, robert ho tong was go ahead sorry go so um so
0: the you know robert Tong is kind of the patriarch of the whole family that that kind of started the whole family fortune but hotong himself is of mixed eurasian heritage and his father is uh, a dutch-born uh, bossman charles henry maurice bossman who is uh, of the dutch jewish yes. uh, heritage and who came at a tender age of 20 to work for um, a Dutch company in Hong Kong, uh, Cornelius uh, Koopman Chap, and uh, it's basically um, a, a firm that trade in Chinese coolies.
1: So, so they were a labor hire company. Yeah, so, something between a labor hire company and a and a slave yes. trading company. Yes.
0: So, so uh, Bossman came to Hong Kong in. 1859 so this is about um you know 10 19 years after the opium war the first opium war after which the Br- britain uh you know forced Hong forced china to cede the hong kong island to britain uh as a trading post and and then um at this time you know around 1859 uh, very soon after, there will be a second Opium War where, where uh, the, the joint British uh, French forces will actually march into Beijing and burn down the Summer Palace. And, and it's under this background that the, the, the patriarch uh, of, or, or the ancestor of the whole family, Charles Bossman, came to Hong Kong and working for the Dutch coolie trader so why is the why the, the reason the coolie trade become a thing is actually very much tied to the story of slavery in the west hemisphere because in the early 1800s that's when um you know slaveries are beginning to be banned uh, uh, you know in, in the yeah. british empire and also um the u.s con you know this is also around the time uh, you know the U.S. Civil War is going to come up, right? So 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 the slavery is also coming to an end in U.S. And then in 1867, the U.S. Congress banned the coolie trade to U.S.A. as a form of slavery. Because as soon as uh, um, slavery was banned in U.S., then there was um, <laughs> then 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 U.S. started to import. Uh, coolie laborers from China, you know, to build railroads in California, et etc. Et yes. And in eighteen sixty-seven, U.S. Congress banned the coolie trade to U.S. So now the the, the coolie trade now became uh, redirected to South America. Uh, in this case, to the the Dutch colony of uh, Dutch Guyana, uh, because you know, like because yes. you know,
1: sorry, uh, sorry, can I can go I- ahead? Can I interject here for a yeah. second? Uh, you, you mentioned the Bruce Lee story, uh, the dragon, you know, the movie Dragon with Jason Scott Lee, no relation. Yeah. Um, at one point, uh, Bruce, uh, well, Bruce Lee in the movie is talking about um, anti-Chinese sentiment in America, and he mentions the Coolies working on the railroads, and he said, "Ah." Oh, you know, they they used to send them down on uh, in baskets on ropes yeah. to uh, bolt, you know, to bolt in the bridges or whatever. But sometimes, or sometimes they'd have to go down in baskets to um, lay charges to blast away rock. Yeah. But sometimes they wouldn't pull them up quickly enough. The blast would go off, the rope would break, bye bye, and they'd say, "Not a Chinaman's chance." And they'd laugh.
0: Yeah.
1: So he, um, they actually, um, s- something something about um, the coolies, uh, how they built the railroads in the U.S. Yeah. Um, the, um, they even have his character mention
0: that. Yeah, because the Chinese railroad workers in U.S. who built the transcontinental railway through the most dangerous, most difficult uh, sections from California to the Rocky Mountains, they work on very incredibly harsh conditions in the American West, you know, very, by today's t- standards, very, very unsafe. Um, they, they oh, yeah. you know, very basically uh, at the time, the American West was very sparsely populated. You know, they didn't have uh, people to draw upon the labor uh, needed to build a railroad. And, you know, somebody came up with the idea to import the Chinese labors because they're cheap, plentiful Uh, And cheap. And and so the decision was done to, you know, bring in a lot of the Chinese.
1: And they don't have a choice. Right. And
0: and the thing is, the the way they recruit um, Chinese labor to come to U.S. is through a lot of private contractors, you know, both Western and Chinese. And many of these contractors are very, let's how do we say, unscrupulous in their exploitation. Of these oh, yeah. uh, of these unsuspecting uh, Chinese labor who who basically just want a a chance to earn some earn some money so they can go back home and and bring the money to their family and and but but in reality you know they're at the mercy of a lot of you know of their employers of these contractors who take a huge cut of their salary and not providing them with the necessary a a most hygienic or and or safe working conditions and and this uh and this this pattern was repeated also in south america because the slavery was also ending in south america so they decided to bring the indentured servants into uh into the region to replace the, the the slave labors that was lost and and, you know, Chinese at the time was one of the major source of labor and the, the job of uh, Henry Bossman was to recruit, you know, through these, uh, through Chinese subcontractors to get these coolies uh, uh, <laughs> on the boat, send them to uh, Dutch Guyana to work on sugar plantations, uh, because that, that was the main uh, economic um, stay in those, in those areas.
1: I actually I actually grew up with someone whose mother was to sit you know like they always they were from Dutch Guyana and they said, oh yeah you know we we have Chinese in our family um, this is this is growing up so yeah. I, I never understood the history I, I've never heard about the history of that until like now like how how did their family Come to be in Dutch Guyana. Well, it's very likely that they came to be in Dutch Guyana, just as you said. You know, like one of their ancestors was Coolie Labor, who was sent there, sold the by uh, sold by Henry yeah. ba-
0: Charles Henry Bossman, <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, so Charles Henry Bossman become uh, he became the Dutch consul in Hong Kong and became a very a prominent person in like the foreign community, expat community there. And by, by age 29, he was already part owner of the Hong Kong Hotel and uh, a director of the Hong Kong Duck Dock doc Company. Um, so he's, he's, he's a very prestigious man, well received among the upper class and one of the most important businessmen in Hong Kong. And, you know, so what he did is, uh, you know, like, as a young man with prestige and money in Hong Kong, what he did is do a lot of these uh, Westerners did uh, is take upon a local mistress. Now, um, now at the time, you know, when the when the uh, Westerners first came to China. So there's a lot of. The full interview has been released. my Patreon subscribers. To subscribe, search in Google the Silk and Steel podcast. The Patreon link should be the second one from the top. Or you can go to patreon.com in the search box type in silk. The Silk and Steel podcast should be the first one in the result. I put in a lot of time and effort to put together this podcast and I do ask you for your support for $5 a month you will receive premium patron only episodes like this that details culture politics history of China its surrounding region and China's relationship with the world you will also receive pre-released regular episodes before they have been released to the general public as well as newsletters detailing everything china related topics i hope you enjoy the show and i hope you subscribe thank you for listening
1: bye bye ¡Gracias! No.